just because you have a negative COVID test does not mean you're not spreading the disease to other people. We know that this is unprecedented times. I think one good thing that will come from this tragedy is that the American population will have a new respect for everybody who works in the hospitals during this time, and it's long deserved. All right, Rick, we're back on with Risk Management Monthly. This is the April 2020 edition. Can you believe it's April already? Yeah, I can, to tell you the truth, because the time is going by a lot slower right now. Normally, at our age, the time goes by very quickly, but we are hunkered down, as they say. Uh, I don't yes. know. I think you are, too. I think, Marjean, uh, your wife is not allowing you out of the house. Are you uh, kidding? I, I mean, I have to call in and report every 15 minutes, and uh, I'm, I'm not allowed to s say hello to people on the street and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty ugly. Uh, for those who have not been listening, the last time Rick and I recorded, the, we did the March edition, it was a little early. Nothing had happened in the country by that point in time. All of a sudden... We're, we're a month, uh, we're actually about five weeks later in recording, and the entire country is shut down. Rick, do you remember anything in our medical career like this taking place? I mean, it's no, this, unbelievable. This is, all, this is all historic. I mean, this is, people are going to hopefully look back and say, geez, do you remember that, that time, how bad it was? Because obviously... We're getting, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. Um, so I live in Los Angeles, and uh, two days ago they basically said stop going to the supermarket, stop going to the drugstore. We uh, elected to abandon Los, uh, Southern California and drove to uh, Arizona yesterday. So I'm here, it's like wide open. My son is this morning, is at Costco picking up stuff for us, you know, and the uh, local supermarket, no problem kind of thing, no lines, in you go. Uh, well, I'm sure it's only essential things, though, Rick, like uh, uh, high-quality gin, expensive <laughs> limes, that sort of thing he's picking up. I mean, right. you, you wouldn't be getting non-essential material during this well, you know, period of time. We were also having, like, you know, three weeks of rain, which for L.A. we needed very badly, but I was just getting tired of it. And we were it was raining yesterday, and we just drove out of it. When you got to Palm Springs, it like was like the skies opened, and it was like unbelievably beautiful. And I'm here, and it is just fabulous, and the temperature today is going to be probably around 80 degrees. And um, it's, it's, I think it's, I feel much safer here because... Um, this process has not come here yet. But listen, let's get started. We have a lot to cover here. Yeah, we have a lot uh, to cover. And uh, we should let people know that next month uh, we're going to have a lawyer with us because we're going to get into the lot of the, of the high-level legal uh, problems and potential problems with this COVID process, uh, granting of privileges, emergency privileges of doctors, uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about next month too, Rick. But let's let's take off, and uh, we'll wait for uh, to have uh, Mark with us to do the uh, very technical legal things. Right, we're going to have Mark Calvert uh, with us. He was with us a couple years ago. I have no idea why we waited so long to bring him back. 
uh, he was introduced to us by Amomotu uh, when he did some uh, cardiac cases with Mark, and he was just a pleasure to be with on the uh, on the recording. And so he's going to be with us. He's going to tell us a lot of stuff about what's going on in in his experience. But he's also yes, we are going to talk about a couple of things that were um, sent over to us that uh, apply very much to the law and him. Let's get started with our stuff, though. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start out with the, this temporary medical licensure uh, response to uh, COVID, where doctors can practice in other states, whether it be live or uh, largely via telemedicine. Um, I found a website that lists what every state is doing to allow other people to practice in the state who are not uh, otherwise licensed there. And it goes state by state. Surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, a lot of states are doing absolutely nothing. But the, uh, other states are obviously much more liberal, like New York right now, which is historically, I don't know how this is going to end up, but right now it's the worst place in the country with regard to this disorder. They're looking for people to come in and volunteer, and um, and they, they're trying to deal with this licensure issue. The other three thing is- thing, three things happened in New York, Rick, which we should point out. And one of those is the governor just basically said, uh, if you come to New York to volunteer your time, uh, essentially you there is no malpractice risk. Number one, number two. Uh, insurance questions will all be taken by the state of New York. Number three, you don't have to have a New York license. If you're licensed in any state of the United States uh, and it's in good, good standing, the licensure, we will accept that. So you don't have to sit for anything. I don't ever remember uh, this sort of blanket immunity being given uh, and a blanket welcoming of every state's medical license. I don't remember it before, Rick, in the United States. And you probably won't remember it again in the future. I mean, this is absolutely unchartered territory, but there's a sense of desperation here, and I can certainly understand that. We talked once before, at least once before, about this interstate medical licensure compact, because yes. as telemedicine was taking off, you got into this trouble, well, you can't talk to a person in another state because you're not licensed in that state, which is, you know, that's not going to work in telemedicine. So they had this thing where 29 states, Guam and the District of Columbia, got together and came up with this interstate medical licensure compact, which would allow, if you met the criteria, uh, which would allow you to practice live and via telemedicine in any one of these states, and obviously it was intended largely for the states in the in the middle of the country, where telemedicine was uh, going to be much more prominent because of the uh, like in the rural areas, they can't get the doctors out there. Telemedicine was going to help, that, uh, so that's uh, where it was intended. But now, it's, if for anything live or otherwise, now the criteria for that is uh, really tough, pretty tough because. They said 80% of the doctors in the country will, will qualify. I said, 80%? <laughs> Who are those other 20% you know, that will not qualify for this kind of thing? And yes. uh, in the show notes, basically, there is a, a listing of the criteria to be included. 
because uh, there's more and more doctors picking up telemedicine, and so I think that this would be important to have. Now, I, I'm not going to go through all of these by any stretch of the imagination, but first of all, you have to be board certified in something. Greg, do you remember when you got out of medical school uh, uh, that if you graduated from medical school and you completed an internship, you can go out and practice after that? Absolutely. You were, you were called a general practitioner. Well, uh, you were allowed to, in the state of Michigan at that time, I finished, did the internship, and you could then, uh, it, you got your permanent Michigan license. Uh, and if you wanted to do a residency, that was fine. If you didn't, you could do whatever you wanted to. But it was not uncommon, and that's what, 40, <laughs> unfortunately, 40-some years ago, uh, that there were plenty of general practitioners around who that's all the training they had done. In fact, there were even general surgeons who had not completed the residency in general surgery, uh, but had done two or three years and were doing limited operations at some very uh, well-respected hospitals. So the world has changed, Rick, since uh, you and I got out. Yeah, I don't. It was that. It was the same way in um, California. Uh, you could go out and do general practice, but that's not that. All that has changed now, and in fact, there's a whole subset of literature about what can these people who have medical licenses do, who are unlicensed, and who are otherwise unlicensed in, in any boarded specialty. What can they do in, in, in a state? Because now they're in kind of some kind of limbo uh, situation. I want to give you one example of, of how tough that this could be. One of the criteria is that you are passed each component of the USMLE or a, comp, a comparable exam in no more than three attempts. Now, that's... That's kind of interesting. I mean, you only got three shots at it. Nobody else would kind of look at something like that. So there's a whole bunch of things that, that ultimately would exclude 20% of the doctors who, in this country. So that that is um, available to you. Um, and a little frightening. Um, I was an examiner for the boards in emergency medicine and actually was asked to examine a, um, a candidate who is coming for his third try at the oral boards in emergency medicine. And it was explained to us in no uncertain terms that if he failed his third attempt, um, they were not going to let him sit for emergency medicine boards again. So mm. this, this uh, three strikes and you're out thing is, is not unknown. And unfortunately, this person did strike out. Uh, it was a very controversial question, which which ultimately was resolved uh, with a legal action. Well, you know, I think that it's appropriate that not everybody pass. If everybody passes, you don't have any kind of um, quality control here. It's impossible to say that everybody who sits for this exam uh, passes. No way. Right. All right, Greg, now tell us a little bit more about Medicare and uh, telehealth services. Yeah, Rick, the Medicare payment for telehealth services, this is extremely interesting. And if you want to find an area where fraud could take place, CMS 
has basically said in its telemedicine activity, uh, you can go ahead and do it from multiple different locations and they are not going to, uh, they're going to pay for those services, which means if someone sets up a mill in the middle of Arkansas just to take a place and wants to be calling and giving out these services, what is the criteria and who's going to oversee and check all these things? None of this is terribly clear at this point in time, but there, there are three points here. Uh, for the duration of an emergency situation, and I think we would all have to conclude that uh, we're living in a strange emergency situation right now, Medicare will pay for the financial services in all areas of the country at the same rate as the regular in-person visit. Wow, that's now, pretty impressive. That That is unbelievably <laughs> impressive, and uh, I've never seen anything like that. HHS, uh, uh, number two, point number two, will not conduct audits <laughs> to track whether there has, uh, you know, been a prior patient relationship or uh, any uh, claims submitted in any other form uh, during this public health emergency. So basically what it is saying is if it is a declared emergency, it's pretty much open season. You can give a service, send a bill, and expect to be recompensed by the federal government. That's yeah, now, impressive. You have to remember this is for Medicare patients. This is not for – this is Medicare only. And, and – I don't know what percentage of Medicare patients are going to be using uh, telemedicine, given the fact that most of them are fairly complicated in terms of their pre-existing conditions. It may be the case, Rick, but but let me just say that if you're hunkered down, if you're in a no-travel time zone and all that sort of thing, uh, there may be more of this used than you think. Oh, the I agree. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is for those patients – who, to whom transportation is a difficulty. And now in Detroit, they've stopped the bus system. They've stopped this system, that system. Getting to the doctor is much harder today than it was a month ago in the city of Detroit. And some of these people have to be seen. Uh, and by the way, patients must initiate the service. The reason that's put in there is what would stop a doc from calling up people and saying, "Would you like? Would you like a service? Would you like this, that, or another thing?" They, the the feds are absolutely aware that you could get a a not a a doctor without scruples uh, milking the system here if you're not careful. Yeah, they say physicians can inform their patients that they are available by telehealth setting uh, services, but you cannot basically initiate the services yourself. Exactly. Time for a, Time for a visit, Mrs. So-and-so, <laughs> yeah. even though we had never scheduled anything. Well, it's interesting that today I had a call from, from one of my physicians that said, oh, that, you know, remember we had to cancel your visit, we had to do this or that. By the way, 
uh, even though we can't officially be taking you in, uh, we are scheduling ahead four to six, you know, four to six months or whatever it is. We'd like to start putting you back into the rotation. I think there are plenty of family docs, internists. In this case, it was a rheumatologist who was going to make sure that his patient population doesn't wither or drift away uh, during this time of trouble in the country. Well, that's assuming that everybody has access to being a telemedicine physician. And if, if anything, it's kind of like those uh, most community physicians don't know how to access telehealth. They're not going to be <clears throat> providing their services by uh, telehealth. So they may be losing patients to uh, telehealth doctors. Exactly. And, and I think that was the exact reason for the phone call. In any event, um, had another phone conversation today with several uh, emergency docs around the country, including uh, Al Sacchetti in New Jersey, who told me visits to his hospital, and he's 45 minutes from Manhattan, that visits to his hospital were down, visits to the ER were down uh, about uh, 70 or about uh, 40%. I said, why do you think that is? He says, nobody wants to go to an emergency department these days if they don't have to. They'll put up with their sprained ankle, their cut finger, their this or that, because the last place you want to show up today is a place where everybody's got masks and gloves and you might catch a, a genuinely lethal disease. Yeah, uh, actually, the local emergency department where I'm uh, at in Los Angeles is down uh, 20%. So this is kind of like the lull before the storm in some ways because all of these emergency departments are, have been gearing up for the last three to four weeks to have this surge of patients. And New York got the surge, and the question is, is how... Is that surge going to be uh, moving to various places? Like New Orleans has got uh, some problems as well. I also saw that this is close to home for you, Greg, that the Henry Ford Hospital System has 700 employees who are COVID positive. Yes. Uh, Henry Ford, main Henry Ford, is 40 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Now, it, it, we, we don't have patient populations that overlap very much. But uh, it, the chief of police for the city of Detroit is uh, COVID positive. Uh, there are like 600 police officers who are COVID positive. Uh, Detroit is a hot spot, and nobody knows exactly why we would be the ones. But it's like New Orleans. It, it, well, we know about New Orleans. I mean, they decided to hold Mardi Gras, which... Uh, help to uh, spread the, the virus pretty well. But why we're such a big problem, um, nobody knows at this point in time. Let me tell you something else, which which uh, the feds are debating and we they don't know what to do with, and that is telemedicine for psychiatric disease simply because with all of this anxiety, you've got old people uh, in apartments who, a lot of whom are by themselves, you know, Absolutely. loneliness, yeah. loneliness mm -hmm. is a bad disease. 
Um, I've taken it upon myself. I've got a list of old people, and I suppose I should be on my call list, uh, who my wife and I call just to kind of talk to, because this is tough. Now, who can do this, uh, and who can charge the federal government for this kind of uh, service? Because, you know, you realize most of these are uh, Medicare-eligible patients. If you're a, a clinical psychologist, can you do that? Uh, are we going to let people who have a master's in social work do this? Um, the, there's a lot of fine points to be settled here, Rick. But I think we're going to see uh, more and more old people found in their apartments sent into the emergency departments who really are having psychiatric disease. Well, uh, are you billing for this, Greg? Yeah, uh, we <laughs> we're not yet, but uh, but Listen, you know, we're, why don't we make a deal? I'll call you, you call me, you know, right. <laughs> and, and just with our friends, that ought to be enough to set us up for life. I mean, you ought to do let's, it. Let's move on to uh, Missouri. Missouri proposes new standards for punitive punitive damages. This is from Medscape, February twenty fourth of this year. This is getting uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, I so know. the state of Missouri has moved to raise the bar regarding punitive uh, damages. The uh, act that they've uh, uh, passed, punitive damages sh- shall only be awarded if the plaintiff proves by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant intentionally harmed the plaintiff without just cause. So you can have, you can intentionally harm them. But if you have just cause for intentionally harming them, you may you may not qualify here. You know, this is this, like holy smokes. This is this is this is this is pretty um, remarkable, actually. Well, it's bizarre, and the reason is this: the last time I checked, if you personally hurt somebody, that was a felony. Uh, we we call that a crime. That's why malpractice is not a crime. It's not intentional harm. I, I, I can't even understand what all the forces were that pushed this. There hasn't been any push for this um, in, in the state of Michigan. I'll promise you that. And I haven't heard of any other places which are doing this. I don't know what the impetus for this is. But if you intentionally mean to harm somebody... I, I, they call that, they call that abuse or they call that, uh, an, an assault, but I don't know where they get away with this. This is very strange stuff, Rick. Yeah, this is, uh, for sure. Now when Texas liberalized its malpractice laws, uh, they were flooded by new applications for physicians that right. the, the board could not keep up with all these people coming into the state because it was like uh, you, you'd have to be uh, an axe murderer there to uh, get involved in a malpractice case. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because most states have kind of dealt with this punitive damage thing by having caps on punitive damages. Like California's had one. And many, many states have yeah. caps. These guys said, forget the caps. <laughs> We're going to change the, uh, the, change the rules here on what defines uh, a malpractice case. So I don't know whether this is actually done in 
concert with this infection that's going on or not, or whether it, it preexisted it, but uh, pretty historic kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, all right. Next, um, there's a there is a a problem which the two of us know about from some previous cases. This is, by the way, from Law 360, uh, Becker's Hospital Review, February 6, 2020. A federal judge dismissed a proposed class action suit alleging that HCA Healthcare billed ER patients for an undisclosed quote-unquote cover charge um, for their visit to the emergency department. Three patients sued HCA, complained about this ED facility fee, which is described or is looked at as some sort of undisclosed charge, which they were never told about when they went to the, when they entered the emergency department. A, a district judge in Florida, um, Took, took the entire matter and said, wait, two of the three people uh, who, who uh, have brought the suit did not have standing in the state of Florida, i.e. they must not have been residents uh, or received the service there. And the third person uh, did, not, uh, did not localize the charges correctly um, so that his was tossed. But the judge didn't say this is gone. What he said is, you have uh, until February 17th, I have no idea whether it took place last month, to amend the complaint. This goes back to everything that's been going on in the last six months about emergency departments and uh, retro billing, uh, going back, trying to pick up fees, I have no idea why the judge let these, this go this quickly, but they can come back with this, and this is what they're talking about. This is coming back, fees, uh, uh, sort of carrying charges, that sort of thing, which can be tucked onto bills, which patients are not aware of when they're in the department. Yeah, this is, uh, we talked about this before when it was first filed, and it's, this is embarrassing that the, yes. that the attorney for this, first of all, it was a, it was a uh, class action. Well, the class was three people for crying out loud. Do you think he could do better than that kind of thing? Yeah. And, yeah. and on top of it, this most basic of criteria, whether you have standing in the state to be able to sue for this, they, they didn't meet. It was like nobody did their homework here. Okay, let's do some cases, Greg. All righty. Uh, I'm going to do the first one here. This is kind of interesting. Uh, this is a case involving CT. 89-year-old uh, female presents from a nursing home with abdominal pain and vomiting. The emergency physician orders some pain medication. And a CT without contrast was done on the reasoning that she was frail and had decreased kidney function. Uh, the scan came back normal, and the patient was discharged. <laughs> the patient died two days later of uh, mesenteric ischemia. And yes, there were some issues, obviously, in this case regarding the quality of the evaluation and the failure to get a surgical consult. But the, but the main thrust of this was the fact that this CT was done without contrast. And so 
the both sides. Some experts say, "Oh, I, absolutely, you got to do contrast in this setting," and obviously there were, were experts on the other side that said, "No, uh, I, we agree with the doctor uh, and what he did." It was uh, an offer for settlement was made somewhere between nine hundred thousand and one point five million dollars was re- requested by the family. That's a lot for an 89-year-old kind of thing. Well, that, uh, <laughs> understand, that's why there wasn't a settlement, Rick, because if they said 50000 and we'll go home, that's what would have happened here. But that's a lot of money to ask for an, 80, for an 89-year-old who's, who's now dead. Well, see, that also they were basically in a nursing home, although they, they, they probably don't look at uh, future earning capacity in this situation. So the emergency physician was painted as a caring uh, physician and felt that the patient may not tolerate the contrast. And this prevailed. The idea was that the physician considered it and in his professional judgment said, no, we're not going to do it. So there was a five-day trial that occurred, and there was a uh, verdict for the defense. So the doctor won here. Uh, This is the good, caring doctor who may or may not have uh, done the right thing. Maybe had it been done two days later, the outcome would have been better. Although, you know, it's hard for me to understand, honestly. I don't want to be too cavalier about this, but an 89-year-old with abdominal pain and vomiting does not go home until it's, you know, obviously the diagnosis was gastroenteritis. Well, you know, an 89-year-old doesn't get gastroenteritis. No. It's all bad. Whatever they're yeah. having is bad. And yeah. what, what was unusual in this case, Rick, is if, if I was talking to a medical student about this, I'd say, where do they go? What do they do? Who takes care of them? Who sees them tomorrow? Was something set up? There's no indication that uh, a physician was called to come in, a general surgeon, to see the patient, decide whether they needed another test. Uh, There's good arguments that say that if if a patient like this, in whom you think there may be mesenteric ischemia, uh, the, the lesser of all easels is to give the contrast material. Uh, it's unlikely that they're going to wipe out her kidneys. Uh, and the uh, it, it, something else should have been done. But there was no, it, it was not indicated that a follow-up home program was set up. And to me, that would be the complaint in this case, is that, she kind of got returned home and most 89 year olds uh, have something it is, has been my experience. I don't well, know about yours. She yeah. came from a nursing home. So she goes back to the nursing home and uh, she continues to have the pain. However, the uh, staff there probably says, well, we, uh, she was checked out and she had a CAT scan and, you know, so, so it's It's okay. It is. It's okay. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, the worst thing you can be uh, is return necessarily to the nursing home because you and I have all seen problems uh, with that. Well, and she was given a, a clean bill of health. You got a right? normal CAT scan. What possibly could be wrong? Yep, so yep. This is where, that's just strange. All right. Next you know, case. 
Gregory, you you've got the next one here. This is All we right. have two two lumbar puncture cases that are very interesting. Yeah, you know, whenever I see lumbar region or lumbar puncture, I mean, it's never a good thing, is it, Rick? I mean, I nobody ever says, well, <laughs> they they got they got a little fluid, and they went home. This is uh, from Medscape again, uh, February twenty fourth. Uh, 2020, a doctor was administering treatment for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Now, this treatment was being given to a 13-month-old, uh, and the uh, after the LP was done, the treatment was inserted. The the uh, chemotherapy was given. The mother noted the child was irritable and not moving her legs. Hello? <laughs> I don't know how many things there are to hit down there, but the only thing I can think of is they're compressing the spinal cord in some way. Subsequent inv uh, investigation noted that a spinal injury had occurred and that the site of injection uh, was most likely, because it isn't definitely recorded on the chart, was mostly... Uh, likely done in the region of T12. Now, that's a little higher than we'd like to see because obviously the spinal cord is still sitting there. Everything hasn't branched out at that point in time. And uh, it was stated in the complaint that the physicians placing the needle in at that level was a clear violation of the standard of care. And when injecting uh, in the lumbar region of an infant of this age, uh, damage can occur. The child, it was uh, testified uh, to, will always be wheelchair dependent. And Rick, how much would you take to have your child paralyzed for the rest of their life? Uh, this is a bummer for sure. Um, it was $10 million is what the settlement was. So, so there right. was no trial here because it's like when you have a child, this is like prima facie evidence here. We got a lumbar puncture, spine, can't, wa can't walk, you know. Right, right. Uh, uh, now, I don't know, obviously, what's being done in treating some kid who has lymphoblastic leukemia in terms of whether what they're injecting into the spinal column at all. But, but the fact right. of this is, is that had nothing to do with this case. It was where the needle was inserted. And right. I know in adults, at least, the spinal cord and somewhere around uh, T12 in that neighborhood, uh, L1 region. And from there, all of the, the spinal nerves go down through the uh, spinal canal. Uh, their, their nerves uh, like a T uh, T one L L one through S five. All those nerves go as horse's tail. The cauda equina. Cauda equina. It looks like a horse's tail in the. Right. You, so you puncture the dura below that, and you hope that your needle doesn't prick a nerve, and that you're just going to get sucked into the fluid and do your business there. And right. and I was always told kind of thing that the place that you insert this is this line that goes from the top of the iliac crest, you know, when person lighting iliac crest, to iliac crest, that, that, that's the inner space you want to go. Maybe you can go one higher than that, but this is like uh, substantially higher cost, $10 million. Now, 
what's the likelihood of this happening now? It's really, really, really small because lumbar punctures are rarely being done now uh, because the incidence of meningitis in source unknown fevers in kids is really very, very small. In fact, we have a lecture in this year's course that basically says that you would have to do something in the neighborhood of, of between three and 500 lumbar punctures to get one case of meningitis in a fever source unknown kid in a kid uh, older than one month. One month is a different story. Their, their rate of meningitis increases substantially, but it's still, you're going to do 100 lumbar punctures before you're going to get a meningitis case. Yeah, well, that's, that's because I think in the one-month-old, Listeria monosogenase uh, still exists. And uh, all the other uh, bugs, which were common when we were young in medicine, have dropped off dramatically. Um, I remember early on in my uh, practice, you would see a couple of kids a month with a bacterial meningitis. In, in my last five years of practice, maybe I saw one kid in five years with a full-blown meningitis. It became that rare. Well, you know, it also brings up the issue, I don't know that it has a lot of medical legal consequences, is how often did a resident get to do a lumbar puncture in a little little kid through their three- or four-year residency? I mean, I think that that, and how likely are they to feel competent and, and uh, doing these uh, procedures? I mean, unfortunately, at our in our area, it was common, and we did feel comfortable. But, you know, I think that this is a procedure that you you could probably get through your residency without doing one of these. Yeah, it probably could happen. Right. All right, let's do another lumbar puncture case. This is a case where it's failure to perform a lumbar puncture. This is from a consultant, 360, a four-and-a-half-year-old went to an urgent care center, uh, center with a temperature of 105 with red, non-blanching skin lesions and vomiting. Red, non-blanching skin lesions and vomiting. The last I heard, non-blanching skin lesions were little bleeding, little bleeds around capillaries in the skin, otherwise called purpura. Yeah, petechiae, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, the PA who saw the person at the urgent care center feared a meningitis and referred the kid to the local emergency department. The emergency physician that was on that weekend night uh, was not particularly familiar with pediatrics and had, and had found that most children coming into the ED had common illnesses, which is so true. And so you're going to be right 99% of the time, not because you're smart, but because the kids aren't sick so that they can go home kind of thing. But in this case, and of course the diagnosis of gastroenteritis was made, <laughs> and the kid was discharged on Tylenol and Phenergan. Uh, the kid did not approve. The parents called their family physician on Monday, because uh, the initial visit was over the weekend. Uh, that He directed the uh, child to be taken to the ER immediately, where the on-duty physician diagnosed meningitis, IV antibiotics, and fluids were given. The child was transferred to a pediatric ICU. The DIC that caused the pulpura firminans uh, caused vascular compromise to both arms and both legs, resulting in them being amputated. 
Can you imagine, Greg? Both no. arms, both legs being amputated. Because this is basically a DIC kind of thing where you have uh, clots being formed in the vascular system, which then gets showered out to the peripheral vessels uh, into the, and the end organs. And the end organs are like hands and, and feet. And um, so this kid, it's interesting, this kid was an honor student because you would think that in meningitis, a lot of times there's going to be mental retardation and the like. But they were confined to a motorized wheelchair, as you might in division. And the settlement in this case was only $10 million, which I think was a, was a bargain, was a bargain. Uh, when this, meningitis- is a, Greg, this is a sad case. Here's the problem. The emergency department was sent a case. Sent, uh, somebody was sent into them because they felt uncomfortable doing the procedure. A PA uh, didn't feel com- didn't feel they had the diagnosis in hand. Sent the patient in, and this emergency physician did not perform any other procedure or. If they felt uncomfortable about doing the procedure, they should have called someone in who could do it. I mean, there's still plenty of us who have who have done this procedure, Rick. This is very sad. I mean, this is this is one of those cases where you're thinking, what's wrong here? I mean, well, obviously, this, a, this physician was not a board certified emergency physician. I would doubt that extraordinarily. Uh, yeah, the case because it said in the in the write up that this physician was was not particularly familiar with children's illnesses, but the law of averages said that they were going to be okay. So this kid was o- going to be okay too. And, and you know what? He is exactly right. Unfortunately, <laughs> you have to deal with the patient who's in front of you, and and that's that's a different situation. That's that's not good. Uh, sounds to me, I was going to say. $10 million probably wouldn't be enough for me and my kid. I no, mean, this kid had uh, over 20 operations. Right? Oh, my God. <clears throat> so the oh, first case awful. we did was a $10 million settlement, and, and the kid was uh, wheelchair-bound. Now, we don't know about the outcome of the lymphoblastic leukemia or whether the child survived or that or not, but in any case, I think $10 million is not a reasonable settlement for a person with no arms and no legs. Who's yeah. going to live a normal lifetime? You would more you would expect. Good. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. Next case. Um, this is always a problem: chest pain with wide pulse pressure. Now, somebody arrived in the emergency department, a uh, uh, um, middle-aged male, uh, at uh, 4:30 in the afternoon. And the pain ran from his abdomen to his chest. Pain had been going on for three hours. Worst pain ever experienced. Patient considered stable by the triage nurse so they could wait to see the doctor. Uh, Plaintiff uh, states blood pressure in triage was 33 over 35. No, 133. 133 over 35. Now, that's a big pulse pressure. The patient is diaphoretic. He's got the bad pain. um, And it was their conclusion 
that they, the people in triage should have called the doctor immediately. Now, by 5.15, another hour later, it's 135 over 45, seen by the resident an hour and 20 minutes after that. And at 7.20, the patient became tachycardic. Bradycardic. Bradycardic. And, and arrested. Uh, an emergency CT did show a uh, type 1 aortic dissection. Um, this, this is not a great case. Diagnosis at the emergency, uh, uh, diagnosis took place and uh, emergency surgery was performed and a type 1 aortic dissection was uh, attempted to be treated. Key issue obviously, is the failure on presentation to have him taken seriously, what to do with that widened pulse pressure and this absolutely uh, horrible pain. But here's the thing that bothers me the most. On looking at the chart, they'd given a family history of aortic dissection. The last time I checked, this did tend to run in families, and with a family history of de- aortic dissection, Rick, I, I think we would have moved a little quicker to try and do this. Now, in all fairness, the number of these patients who, when they arrive with his his blood pressure, by the way, if you do the figuring, uh, is low, no question. And patients who present with a, a, a an average uh, pressure such as that, don't make it off the table. No question about that. However, uh, because because of the time delay in getting things done, it, the settlement uh, was done for one point five million dollars. What do you think? Well, I think that. Uh, Obviously, the wide pulse pr- pressure. This is enormously wide pulse pressure. I mean, this is like no mistake. They repeated it. It's like, and they didn't connect the dots, unfortunately. And there was a delay. And there was a pretty substantial delay. The triage, you know, the, the doctor can't see a person any quicker than they know about the person. So this is a big screw up in triage, which allowed this patient to be considered to be, you can wait to see the doctor and an hour and 20 minutes later. So I think that's a primary failure in, in that department. Uh, but there's also this issue about, well, what was the salvageability of this person anyway? When right. by, by the time they come in with a wide pulse pressure, what's the, what's the mortality going to be? So this is not one of those things, had you taken out the appendix a day earlier, it would have been okay. This right. is, uh, the clock is running, and you didn't get in there early enough, but we don't know, frankly, what would have made a difference. So the settlement here of $1.5 million, you know, I, I don't know. I think it kind of depends on the age of the patient to a certain extent. I would not be particularly happy to uh, receive $1.5 million if this was a family member, but... We don't know all of the other circumstances that involve this case. We we just get a a real short summary. Let me uh, let me tell you about this exact case, which was famous in Los Angeles. 
This is the John Ritter case. Remember John Ritter from the TV show? His father was Tex Ritter, who sang, Oh, don't uh, forsake me, oh, my darling. <laughs> listen, listen, uh, listen. Can I stop you? Yeah. I, I think that the vast majority of people you're talking to have no idea what you're talking about. You know, Tex Ritter, John Ritter. <laughs> what was the TV show called? Uh, you know, it was, it was on... Three's Company, right. Yeah, it was, it was many, many years ago. And these young whippersnapper doctors, they don't know anything about John Ritter. Well, you young whippersnapper doctors, uh, John was taken from a... Um, set where he was shooting in Los Angeles. Actually, and it was right across the street from the, uh, right across the street hospital. from the hospital. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that was, uh, that was St. Joseph's hospital in Burbank where I rotated as a resident. He was taken there, very competent hospital and uh, very competent emergency physician group. And, um, they, they missed his diagnosis. Well, it, it was more complex than that though, Rick, because the hospital was deathly afraid of the publicity which went with this case. The hospital settled. The emergency physician did not, and the emergency physician group did not, and they went to trial. And considering the time, and the times were much more compressed than this. And they uh, counted on the fact that by the time you get everybody in to do this surgery, he was already dead. I mean, uh, John Ritter was hypotensive, massively hypotensive, uh, by the time thoracic surgery arrived, and he uh, and and he died. Uh, and and the emergency doc said, "Yeah, that happened, but uh, it wasn't me." It wasn't so much that I missed the diagnosis, but I had to get everything going, and I did my best. So the hospital did pay out to the family. Uh, the emergency doc in this case did not. Yeah, this was a, a really high-profile case. This has also occurred in, in an era where malpractice uh, trials were much more common than they are now. Yes, you know, between then and now, the incidence of malpractice trials going on and uh, lawsuits filed, you know, has dropped like a stone. Those of you who have been listening for a while have heard us repeat this story five times about John John Ritter, John Ritter. Uh, because he, he was so famous. And you know, you got to remember the big three diagnoses here. If you're starting to talk about chest pain or PEMI and um, this section. Now, there, it's not 33% for each one of them in terms of their incidence, obviously, but you got to think of those three things when, when come, somebody's coming in with chest pain. I just reviewed a case very recently of a, of a, of a person in their 40s who went to an emergency department, had normal troponins and normal EKGs, and had ongoing chest pain and was admitted for rule-out cardiac ischemia. And um, when they got to the floor, they basically, uh, the, you know, the nurse comes for the uh, initial assessment, eyes rolled back, patient um, died, and that, that was it. So this is, 
these are tough cases for sure because the clock is is running in these cases. But in any case, that's uh, watch out for the big three, and you, you got to remember that the, the big three can, involves this case, which is not very common, but you can't afford to miss it. You know, uh, Greg, what we were going to do next is pick up where we left off on the, now we used to call it Kaveri's, Kaveri's insurance. And I was corrected that this is properly termed Covarus. 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 Mm -hmm. But in any case, before we get to that, I, I just got something that I think I would like to review. You, I haven't sent you this because I just got it. But the title is CMS makes sweeping regulatory change to help hospitals combat COVID-19. Six things to know. First of all, hospital capacity. CMS is waiving rules to require hospitals to provide services within their own buildings so that basically hospitals can render services in hotels, dormitories. You got the tent out in the parking lot. CMS says that that's all okay now. Uh, you're, uh, and when they say it's okay, that means you get paid. You'll get paid. That's yes. what CMS does. <laughs> yes, that's, exactly. And this only applies to Medicare patients. So, uh, uh, but I think it, most insurance companies are going to follow the lead of Medicare here uh, in these situations. Number two, catch this: ambulatory surgery centers are now allowed to contract with local health systems to provide hospital services or to bill as hospitals during the emergency uh, declarations. Because those places, they've got ventilators, they've got uh, post-surgical receiving areas and monitors and those kinds of things and oxygen and and the like. By the way, Rick, while you mentioned the term ventilator, what most people in the public don't understand is when you need to go on a ventilator, it's deep shit. Uh, the, the number that actually gets sent home from the hospital is pretty good. The number who went to ICU and were and spent long time on ventilators is not good at all. So uh, although they're they're making a fuss that uh, oh if we'd only had more ventilators things would have been fine. The answer to that is no. It isn't fine, no matter where we are. Yeah, that's that's true. Number three out of the six is that um, relates to an- ambulance transport. Uh, the changes by CMS say that ambulances are allowed to transport patients to a wider range of locations, including physicians' offices, urgent care facilities, and mental health centers. And if you do that, we'll pay you for it. Uh, COVID-19 testing. Hospitals can perform COVID-19 testing on people at home and in other community settings, you see these COVID testing centers being set up. Well, if you're a Medicare patient, they'll pay for your uh, testing, even though it's not related to it's one of these uh, special centers. Medicare will also pay, catch this, for a laboratory technician to travel to a Medicare patient's home to collect a specimen for COVID-19 testing. Have you ever heard of anything no. like this? You can go to their home. Now, you can't get other blood tests. You know, we're not going to pay for the other ones that you get when you go to their home. But we'll pay for the COVID-19 test and the technologists to go out there. Telehealth. Now, this is obviously the big one here. CMS will pay pay for more than 80 additional services, 
when provided via telehealth, including emergency department visits. Emergency department visits can be done by telehealth exclusively. Um, and in initial nursing home visits and discharge visits, physicians can evaluate Medicare beneficiaries using any type of telephone. You, you, you know, this issue about, well, it has to be kind of like uh, HIPAA compliant and all that other stuff. <clears throat> Not anymore, my friend. So those are six things to know about the evolution of payment here by CMS during this uh, tragedy that we're having in our country right now. Yep. Uh, so Okay, so let's set this up. Covers, they are a malpractice insurer that I never heard of. However, uh, they insure both doctors and the departments. And they did this survey of 1,362 ED claims that they had, which is a huge number to be able to uh, uh, look at data. And I put in there in the show notes, the report on this is, a, a val uh, is available on the Internet, and it's quite detailed, and there's lots of graphs and charts about what they found with their 1,300 cases. But more importantly, they come up with all of these um, recommendations <clears throat> dealing with uh, what they found. So we have covered four of the uh, sites that they have reviewed and um, made recommendations. Arrival to transport, triage, waiting room. You got to own the waiting room. That made it very clear. They had all of these cases about things going bad in the waiting room. And just because they're out there doesn't, doesn't mean that they're, they're in some netherland. And we also did uh, the treatment room. Obviously, that's where most of the problems of malpractice occur. Misdiagnosis, delayed diagnosis, uh, better to diagnose, all that stuff. That's the majority of the malpractice cases. So right, we we're can gonna, we can move gonna, on to another area. Rick, yeah, where this area, area, yeah, this is yeah, called the uh, diagnostic test. Right. Yeah, and if you're going to do a diagnostic test, <laughs> there are things which are very obvious. First of all, oh, if you're going to order a test, check on the test. Know what happened with the test. Uh, they, they actually claim that in 44% of uh, the, the tests, uh, when tests are involved, people didn't know what they said, and uh, they, they weren't sure whether these were correct, were they tied to the correct patient, were they accurately interpreted, uh, did they, did the people who need the results get the results? It doesn't help, uh, if you have a positive, uh, blood culture down in the lab on that sick infant and nobody has reported it out back to the emergency department so they can contact the, uh, the people involved. I, th I think that testing is if we've learned anything from the COVID situation, most people in the country don't understand tests, what they're for, what sensitivity is, what specificity is, and the fact that just because you have a negative COVID test does not mean you're not spreading the disease to other people. So we, uh, we need to keep in mind that testing is limited, and if you're going to ask for the test, you've got to do something with that result 
when it's positive. Right. Well, you know, they're talking about 44% of malpractice cases involved testing in some way. It's really very significant. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a, I think that's a big, big number. And uh, they, you know, the case, some of the cases we did this month involved testing and, and not appreciating the uh, results or not ordering the tests that needed to be done. It's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, obviously I'm going to show my age and prejudice here, but I, I'm of the view that um, there is a huge amount of testing that is unnecessary in this country. Uh, but they don't really want to talk about unnecessary testing. No. Uh, they don't really care that the insurance companies are going to pay for unnecessary testing or the patients are going to pay for it. They just kind of think that, uh, y- you know, I think many people think that generous testing is going to prevent you from being uh, sued. And I think that that is not necessarily the case because many of these t- uh, situations that are not, it's involving the interpretation of the test that you that you ordered. In the case that I... Um, mentioned before of the um, of the dissection and the troponins being negative in this case repetitively, well, that should turn on a little um, switch in your head that says, mm, ongoing chest pain, continuously negative repeat troponins, continuously negative uh, um, normal EKGs or nonspecific EKGs. What, what, what does that all mean? The other thing is, is that, so yeah, I think that there's too much testing now. I think that the residents uh, learn from uh, risk-averse uh, clinicians. I also think that, that that in the residency, it's kind of like, can you make the uh, w- weird diagnosis? Can you uh, th- Did you consider all the possibilities? Did you leave no stone unturned? And all that is, uh, is a, a problem when you get out into the community hospital setting where most of that doesn't apply any longer. Uh, but in any case, testing is is an issue. The, um, I'll let you continue, Greg. I I sorry I interrupted there. No, no, I I, I think <clears throat> all of that's true, and I I think that in the testing field we have to include radiology, and the the biggest problem with radiology is whenever you do a test, you've got to know what you're looking for and. What if they find a, a, a variant finding, a hidden this, a partial that? Uh, when those are reported back, somebody has to take care of those things. And when they don't, you're in big trouble. And I think that, uh, that the emergency doc tends to be cent- uh, centered on the emergency problem. So when you've got a nodule, located by a kidney, something like that, you know, you found the appendicitis or you're looking for the appendicitis, it's not there. Now you have something else. Well, somebody's got to take care of and answer uh, what that finding meant. And uh, that doesn't always happen. And that can be a source of uh, litigation. Well, let's go down this list here. They say, number one, choose and order the appropriate diagnostic test. You know, you see all of these studies about people ordering D-dimers in patients who have a high probability of having a pulmonary embolism. <clears throat> well, that's a situation where you ought not order a D-dimer. You just need to go to the CT angiogram because a D-dimer could be falsely negative in that case, and you'd be up the crick. So, you know, you got to know when to order it. 
you would order a D-dimer in a ca case where there's a low probability of a PE. That's the indication as an example. They also talk about performing the test properly. So we just talked about two lumbar puncture um, cases. One was failure to do it, and the other was improperly doing it. Obviously, the interpretation, um, the receipt and transmittal. Yes, you, you, you're talking about what you, you know, the patient who goes home and they subsequently have a negative finding on their culture or the like, and they don't get transmitted. There's all of this about communicating the results. Repeat tests. You know, we, we, we do repeat tests. Um, troponins, it's kind of like we've gotten used to repeating troponins if the initial one's negative. That's kind of pretty commonly done. Repeating EKGs, I think, is probably less commonly done. And yet, if you talk to Amal Matu, I bet you he would say one of the biggest sins in the, in the situation of missed MIs is failure to do a repeat EKG. Right. And so they're talking about that as well. And they also talk about performing annual point-of-care testing um, to see whether, in fact, people know how to do these tests, like um, whether you know uh, the nurses know how to do an EKG or the lead placements proper. Do they know how to use the uh, glucometers and such? Uh, because these people are also insuring the hospital side of the equation as well. And, you know, I've seen EKGs where the leads are put on all over all over the place. It's like this. No, there's a supposed to be a special spot where you put these leads on. They uh, <clears throat> bring out a case that they had. person pre presents in his 30s with abdominal pain, CT noted appendicitis and an incidental left kidney lesion. Well, we can just stop there. You know, we've gone over this so many times about ultimately the lesion turns out to be malignant and they, they, there's a delayed diagnosis. In this case, the diagnosis was delayed 18 months. A person has a radical nephrectomy and lives to tell about it, but this is just, you know, you know exactly where this is going when they talk about an incidental finding that was uh, not missed. And, you know, I think one of the things that matters here is how you convey this stuff. Uh, I don't think that you can, that the radiologist can call over to the ER and tell the ER clerk that there's, a, it's, there's a appendicitis on the CT, but there's an incidental um, ki uh, kidney tumor uh, lesion. And expect the clerk to convey that to the doctor. Absolutely not. This is a doctor-to-doctor -doctor call for sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, sure, the clerk can take a report when it's a normal it's ankle, really it's a normal chest x-ray, those kinds of things. But as soon as it gets any more interesting, uh, it, this is a doctor-to-doctor -doctor call. Right. Okay. Greg, they have some risk management recommendations regarding improving diagnostic uh, lab tests. Well, Are I you think ready that to go through that list? I, I am, and and but it's the kind of thing that if this isn't what your risk management program is about, you need to rethink your risk management program because what they're basically saying is this: your communication with the radiologist is everything. 
if you don't trust these people and if you can't have decent phone conversations and if they don't know what you're looking for, for example, whenever anybody uh, does a 65-year-old male uh, looking, does the CT looking for their kidney stone, they ought to comment on whether there is any problem with the aorta. We ba- we basically got that down, that you cannot comment on just a kidney stone, yes or no. Uh, we got that the hard way uh, because they said no kidney stone. Good. Well, he still had pain, and it just so happened uh, there was an abnormality uh, and a dissection in the aorta. Uh, I think that sometimes the obvious isn't obvious. All those things need to be commented upon uh, for the report to be correct. Uh, you'd be better off sending sending the patient over with a with a request saying uh, uh, right flank pain, not suspected kidney stone, and let the radiologist figure that out. We need to confirm verbal communications, which have significant diagnostic value. Uh, not again, not scratch them down, but for sure, what did you see? What study do we need to do next? Radiologists are not correctly utilized. Their job should be to tell you, this is the study we need to get to confirm what's going on. That's why we talk to another doctor about this uh, sort of thing. And emergency docs cannot assume that the uh, primary care physician was sent or informed of a significant finding. You need to pick well, listen, the things up yeah. and over. You ordered the test. Yeah. You get the results of the tests, and they make sure that there's a, a loop. You know, every emergency department has to have pretty much a foolproof mechanism for getting these um, updated readings or because you know, a lot of times CTs that are read in the middle of the night then are get reread during the day, and you may have a different reading during the day, etc. They point out the initial radiology interpretation by the ED provider. They need to be validated by a radiologist uh, interpreting them. Uh, now, I, I do think that that that's the case. In most hospitals, they're going to have the radiologist review the readings of the emergency physician and. There's always this thing about overreading and charging for overreading and who gets the charge in first and those kinds of things. I think those have, have long been settled. The, bat, the battle about reading x-rays uh, has all been settled. But the overread, uh, I, I, I think they ought to be overread. And maybe I'm old-fashioned about that, but I, I think that that's the uh, appropriate thing to do. I, think there's, I don't think there's anything else here that I saw that really... Uh, relates to us, um, Gregory. Yep. Uh, I think we're going to stop here. The next session, section, pardon me, is specialty consultation. We'll save that for another issue. We probably won't be doing it in May because we have lots of stuff to talk to uh, Mark Calvert about. Mark Tufan sent us an article that we're going to review next May, potential legal liability for withdrawing or withholding ventilator COVID-19 situation. I think I mentioned that. We've got a great one asking about the rights of people 
um, in terms of being searched for weapons on entering into emergency departments. Now, that obviously only comes up in states like Arizona and Texas, where you're allowed to carry weapons around in the first place. You know? <laughs> or, 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 or Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, I promise you that. You know, I, I, I agree. You know, like at USC, uh, if you go to visit the USC emergency department, you're going to go through a metal detector to go right. in that place kind of thing. They don't ask any questions about whether your rights are being violated. <laughs> you're going through the metal detector. Thank you very much. Gregory, do you have a, a wine or something like that to I, talk I about do. this month? And and this is prompted by something, Rick, and that is um, this past week, an 85-year-old gentleman, the doctor who had the most influence on me developing my abilities as a clinician and my attitudes toward patients a uh, man by the name of Francis Judge uh, died. A very, very close friend, very important in my development. Uh, after that, I went down to my wine cellar and said, you know, I ain't going to wait any longer to drink a lot of the best stuff I've got there. I'm going to start drinking it now, damn it. And uh, I did pull out a bottle of a, an Australian Shiraz um, which is, which is called layer cake. Now layer cake, um, it, not to be confused with some other California wines, uh, cake bread and that sort of thing, but layer cake, Australian Shiraz 2010. Uh, this is one of the hardiest, most robust wines. Uh, I was told early on, save it, save it. Nah, I've saved it long enough. And it was fantastic. So if you're looking for a great Australian wine, and by the way, the Australians need the money. They got almost burned off the planet last summer. Uh, try uh, Layer Cake, the Shiraz uh, from South Australia, and you'll find that it's absolutely terrific wine. All right. Thank you, Gregory. This uh, is concluding then the uh, April 2020 uh, ED. Uh, risk management issue, and we look forward to talking to you next month. We know that this is uh, unprecedented times, and I have to say that I have the highest regard and respect for the, those of you who are on the front lines dealing with this problem 24-7, uh, exposing you yourselves to the risk of acquiring this virus, working in settings where you are don't have all the things that you need to work with, don't have the protective clothing that you need, and that you're still there. And uh, I can't tell you how much I admire emergency medicine. I think one good thing that will come from this tragedy is that the American community, uh, population will have a new respect for its emergency physicians, it's emergency nurses, it's all, everybody who works in the hospitals during these times, the, the first responders, uh, that, that will happen. And it's, it's long deserved, frankly. Yeah. But let me, uh, let me just say that uh, 10, 15 years ago, there was a song by the uh, rock country group Alabama that said 40-hour week in which they talked about those people who worked for a living. And that's exactly what we're getting to see. 
You know, nobody feels bad that if a professor of, of Latin didn't show up for a lecture at the University of Michigan, if the people de dealing with the plumbing break, uh, people not supplying food to the stores, none of those people showed up, we're in deep doo-doo. Um, every work, every form of work has its own dignity. Um, I was from a wor an immigrant working class family, and I'm glad that we're now talking about those people, the transporters in the hospitals, uh, the people who are who are picking up the trays and doing everything else. You know what? All work has dignity, and our and our children should understand that that uh, it's it's not the job you, you you got; it's how you do it and the dignity with which you do it. And uh, again. Uh, I couldn't be prouder of my emergency medicine colleagues, um, and and we're with you in spirit. I promise you that. Okay, Rick Bicata signing off. Greg, I'll talk to you next month. Bye for now. Bye.